I'm Gord. I'm just a volunteer. When Rob's away, and today Rob is away. So I'm going to be your speaker. I hope I can do a good job of it. Uh, in this new series, Signs. And it is the first of those signs. There's a house on my street that has this odd collection of stuff in the front yard. And I didn't notice it first. I go by there all the time. It appeared gradually over time. There's this framework of rough-hewn timber that covers it all, and there's a ladder that climbs up to the top. And if we go to the next slide, you'll see that there are all kinds of signs. There are signs that give directions to cities that are far away, like Halifax and Montreal and Beijing and, and uh, Calcutta. There's even one right there you can see that says Stairway to Heaven. And there's another sign that says, gives directions to nowhere. What does it mean? No idea. I kind of wonder, maybe if I was to talk to the to me, but I don't know what it means. Maybe if we became friends, I could understand it. Sometimes, maybe it's just there for fun. My, my own personal theory is it's so he doesn't have to cut the grass. Signs. We don't know the meaning until we look back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time for us all to come together here today. And thank you for the story that John has recorded for us that we're going to look at. We ask you to to bless this time, to be here amongst us, moving through through us, with us, directing me in what to say, opening our hearts to what it is that you want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read the scripture from John 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. 
They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not know or realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you, my friend, have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's a strange story, really. It's, it's just the second chapter of John. And we've just, it's the first thing that's happened in his ministry after choosing the disciples. John, we believe that John is the last gospel to be written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written first. Then they follow a similar structure in a narrative form. They go literally through to the end of the story. But I think John waited. He was familiar with these, these three books. And I think he felt that they had missed something something that he had experienced, or something that had been really important to him, things that he had lived through that weren't quite picked up in the other stories. His his book follows essentially the same narrative, but he includes different things, and he tells basically two stories at the same time. He tells what happened and what was going on. Those are different. What happened and what was going on. This story of the wedding and the water into wine is a case in point. It's like when you're living through an event, when something happens to you, you know what is happening. But it is only later when you look back at that event that you come to understand what was going on. There was a wedding feast in Cana in Galilee. Cana is a small town. Nobody really knows where it is, but it was apparently near Nazareth, on the west, up in the hills on the west side of the lake. And Jesus and his disciples and Mary were invited to this wedding, this wedding feast. Perhaps Mary was related to the the groom's family, because they would have hosted the feast. She seems to have some authority over the servants. They come to her with the problem. We need to know a little bit about weddings in first century Jewish communities. There There were basically three stages. The When a child was born, the families came together and made the arrangements, the arrangement for a a wedding to take place. That was called the pledge. They might be only infants or very small children. Then as the two principal characters grew, the, the family of the groom would come to the family of the bride and propose the betrothal. This would be when the young woman 
had just entered puberty. The proposed prospective groom would offer the young woman a glass of wine as he pledged his proposal. And she had the choice at that point to get out of the whole thing. But if she took the glass, the cup, and looked him back in the eye and then drank from the cup, it meant she accepted it. And this was their custom. And they were essentially legally married at that point. Although they did not live together, he would go back with his family to their home, and she would stay with her family in their home. And over the next months, about a year, they would prepare for this upcoming feast, which would be the final step in the marriage, in the wedding. The groom and his father would prepare a place where they would live. It might be a separate house, or it might be just a room within his father's home, which would become their quarters, their space. They would also stockpile their savings and their the things they would need for this feast that was going to happen a year or so later. At the same time, the bride and her family would be preparing for the same event. She would spend her time <clears throat> weaving and sewing so that she would have her bridal wardrobe and her wardrobe for her new home. She would prepare her friends and sisters to be her kind of maidens in waiting. And then the father of the groom would alert the family of the bride that the day was coming and that the groom was coming to get his bride. So everybody would get in a hurry and he'd be ready and the groom would come and escort his bride with the new with it with her maiden friends to his home where the marriage would be consummated and then there would be this great feast a great party and the party would last for 7 days every day there would be a feast there would be music there were dancing there would be it was kind of like an open house there might be some guests who would be there every day close members of the families but there'd be other guests who might arrive on Tuesday or on Wednesday or Thursday. They might stay for two days. They might stay just for one or for half a day. And they join in the party. And every day was a celebration around this bride and groom in their new life that they had picked together. And it is in this context where this, this event happens. We are at the wedding feast. And it is probably not the first day. It may be the middle of it because now they have run out of wine. Maybe it is Wednesday. Mary is approached by one of the servants to alert her. <clears throat> We've run out of wine. Perhaps, perhaps they had bought enough wine, but some of it had spoiled. Perhaps more, more, <clears throat> more guests came than were expected. But whatever, there is not enough wine. And Mary goes to Jesus, who is sitting with his disciples in a corner at a low table. And she says, they've run out of wine. And, she's asked, and he says, well, what, what do you want me to do about it? My hour has not yet come. Why does she ask him? Why would she ask Jesus to help solve this problem? Is her thought 
that he, you know, that they're relatives and he's her oldest son. <clears throat> maybe, maybe he could go out and on behalf of, and to save the embarrassment of the family, the groom's family, go out and buy more wine. Find, round up through the community and try to find other wine. Maybe. Or perhaps she knows who he is. <clears throat> She's spent all these years with him. She understands who this son of hers is. She sees that he has just started his ministry. He has called these these disciples who are there with him. Maybe she thinks this is an opportunity for him to do something big. The disciples, John amongst them, they don't know anything. They've only just met Jesus. They've just, according to John's gospel, just been called in the last couple of days to be his disciples. I suspect that they actually have had encounters before this. It wasn't just the first time they'd seen him. Perhaps they'd seen him on the beach in Bethsaida or, or Capernaum when they were mending their nets and heard him speak. And perhaps they'd had, and we know in the other Gospels that there's, there's the story of, of Jesus going to the home of Simon Peter and healing his mother-in-law. We know that, so there's a bit of background but still, they're all new to this. This is all new. And they have very little reason to believe that anything miraculous is going to happen here. He's a great teacher. <clears throat> That's why they're there. They're followers of this teacher. John is watching. He's sitting there amongst this little group of men sitting around the table. The men and the women were kept separate during these events. They sat in different parts of the room, separate groups. And John takes it all in. He hears the conversation of, with, of Jesus and Mary. And he studies it, and he remembers it. He remembers all these details. Maybe that's why John was chosen, because he is an observer a diligent observer who takes it all in. He watches Mary leave Jesus' side and go over to the lead servant and say, do whatever he tells you to do. John turns and watches Jesus looking around the room, looking at the crowd. It's a wedding. There's a cross-section of Jewish society sitting in this room. Men, women. There's the bride and groom. And he turns over there, and there are those six stone jars. Six stone jars that are held, filled with water. Stone was, was believed to be not contaminable. Water in a clay jar could become contaminated with dirt, unclean. And so they didn't use clay jars to, for ceremonial washing. They used stone jars. They could use them over again. And the bride and groom, the groom's family had brought in so many of these jars because all good Jews had to ceremonially wash their hands before eating. It's part of their religious framework of everything in their lives. There are these six 
large stone jars. John watches him. He's looking at those jars. In 2010, Karen and I went to El Salvador. We were part of a, a mission trip from Bromley Road Baptist Church. There was a group of us from this church who went. And we went to El Salvador to build houses. Very simple concrete block houses, about the size of a two-car garage. We were there with other people from Canadian Baptist churches, people from Calgary and from the Maritimes, who were part of teams sponsored by Canadian Baptist Ministries to go and work with this small Salvadorian church called the Iglesia Batista Emmanuel. And we were building these houses in a little town perched on the side of a volcanic mountain called Alegria. It's right near the top. And we were working also with, it was Easter week. Easter week 2010. The week before Easter. And we were working also with the members of the town council and their municipal employees on the building of these houses. Easter week is a holiday in El Salvador, a national holiday. So most people, certainly government workers, have time off. So we were bused to Alegria, along with volunteers from Iglesia Bautista Manuel, to work on the site. And the site was this steeply pitched slope that had been cut out of the woods on the edge of the town. And uh, the plan was to build 50 houses there. And each house would be sold for around $500, ridiculously cheap sum, to impoverished coffee workers, pickers, people who worked for $5 a day and generally were essentially homeless. Most of them lived in shacks at the side of the road. And so they worked on this plan with the municipality to build 50 houses on this site. 20 of them had already been built the year before and were already occupied by people from the community who had been living in shacks. Champas, they called them. So on each house, there was a team of volunteers. Some of the, there'd be a mix of Canadians from Bromley and Calgary, volunteers from IBE, and municipal volunteers. There would be a, a professional mason who was in charge of the build on each house. And there would be the partner family around whom the house was being built. They would participate too. Our house was being built around Fatima, a single mom with three kids. She was a widow. And she built a little canopy right near this construction site, where her three kids could nap in the afternoon in the shade from the hot sun. It got very hot. She worked hard. She was there every day. One afternoon, we took a break where she took us to outside of town, maybe a 10-minute walk, to her, her shack, so we could see where she was living now. And it 
it was a combination. It's like the shacks you see in squatter settlements all everywhere in the third world. Everywhere. Africa, South America, Asia. Bits of corrugated metal. Sheets of rigid plastic. Cardboard even. Held together with string on a framework of sticks over packed mud. There was no electricity, no sanitation. She lived there with her mother and her, her sister and her sister's three kids. All women and little kids. So we were working with her to build her home. It was a pretty powerful experience. On the Wednesday afternoon, around 4.30, we were just getting ready to... Oh, sorry, I should tell you what we were doing. So what we were doing as volunteers is we were... We were, we were essentially donkeys. Sarah's done it before, and Mike. So is Beth, Karen. We've all been off on these mission trips. We're essentially donkeys. The mason did the, the skilled labor. We carried stuff. We carried concrete block. We carried buckets of water. We, we carried sand and, and gravel and wheelbarrows. We humped concrete blocks up into the places for the, for the uh, mason. We took the shovels and we mixed mortar on the ground, on the hard packed ground. Made a kind of a volcano with sand and gravel and cement. And then poured the water in the middle and then turned it over, turned it over, turned it over. And then served it up to the mason in little buckets. It was hot, sweaty work. So that afternoon, the Wednesday afternoon, one of the leaders comes and gets us. We noticed that the shed where they stored all our equipment at night had been opened up. And the people, kids mostly, taking out these plastic lawn chairs, stacked plastic lawn chairs. You know, the basic stackable lawn chair they can get anywhere. They're cheap. That's the kind of classic Salvadorian furniture. Everybody's got plastic lawn chairs in their living room or the, where they live. So they were carrying out these plastic lawn chairs and setting them up in the dirt street in rows. There must have been 50, 60 chairs. And we were invited to join in a kind of little worship service. It was a worship service. They sang songs we didn't know, and then the peasant pastor, Mauricio, delivered a message in Spanish that we didn't understand. Although, in a way, you did. It was really moving, even though you didn't know what the words meant. You could read the the people and the, the moment. It's like a sign. And after he had finished speaking, the people got up and they served us bits of barbecued chicken and tortilla. It was quite moving. It's a great experience. The whole week was a great experience. And on Saturday, the day before Easter Sunday, there's a big celebration. Houses are almost finished. The walls are all up. The roofs are on. There's still a bit of more work to do, but our job is essentially done. It's been a good week. And so they set up those same plastic chairs in the town square, and there's a big canopy put over top of the volunteers because, you know, we don't want to get sunburned. And... There's the mayor speaks, and there's uh, the pastor Miguel speaks, and then there are other people, representatives from the volunteers speak, 
And then the keys are handed out to the new owners of these houses and they come forward to receive their keys and each of the volunteer teams comes down to the front and they get their picture taken with their with their family. We got to stand there with Fatima. She's about this tall. And we gave her the, she gave, got the keys and we gave her a small gifts and we'd given her an, an orange tree to plant in the yard that could give her fruit and maybe remember us. We felt really good. It felt really good and we... That was a great, we were all laughing and enjoying it. And we're heading back to the bus and because we're now going to head off immediately, go back to San Salvador. And I don't even notice the Salvadorian locals all running away, moving quickly out of the square. I didn't even notice the sirens at all. So Jesus continues to look at those jars. John watches him. The, the wedding feast is going on all around them. John mo- Je- Jesus motions to the, the lead servant to come over to him. And he comes to him, bends down to him, expecting perhaps that Jesus is going to give him a purse to go out and buy more wine. But he doesn't. Instead, Jesus says, he points to the jars and he says, fill them with water. The servant is stunned. We're out of wine. We don't need the water. Fill them with water. And he looks around and he he looks at the jars and he looks at the crowd and and he sees Mary sitting on the other side of the room and, and she nods at him. And he remembers what she said. Do whatever he tells you. So he goes. John watching the whole thing. John doesn't know what to make of it. He has no expectation. What is the lesson in this? What are we going to learn? And he watches as the servants hustle out with pitchers off to the town well and bring back pitchers full of water and fill the stone jars. Fill them to the brim. The servant is very nervous, the lead servant. When he is finished, he sees Jesus watching him, watching what they've been doing. And he picks his way through the crowd towards him. The, the musicians have struck up their music, and they're, they're playing Music with multiple instruments and people are clapping and they're dancing the horror. The men are going around in a circle and the people are all excited. They're really enjoying this. And he picks his way through all of this to Jesus. And he tells him that he's done the task he'd asked him. And Jesus says, Take a draft of the water and serve it to the Lord of the banquet. And the servant is, is afraid. This is his responsibility. He's in charge of this. He's, he's going to take water, take some of this water to the head of the, of the banquet, the, the, the head of the ceremony, and serve him the water. Jesus touches his arm and looks in his eye, and tells him, 
get a draft of the water and take it to the Lord of the banquet. John watches him weave back through the crowd, dip his ladle into the nearest jar and pour it into his pitcher. He watches him pick his way through the dancers. And you can see just as he's moving towards them that the, the Lord of the banquet has raised his cup. I need some wine. To indicate he needs some wine. He's very nervous. His face is bleached. He's afraid. And he works his way over through the dancers to the spot where the Lord is sitting. And all the disciples and the servants and Jesus and Mary are watching this. And he takes his pitcher and pours the water that is now wine into the cup. A stream of red, dark, dark red wine pours into the cup. The, the, the cup is just sitting on the table. The, the master has actually forgotten about it because he's been so caught up in the music. And he's clapping his hands and watching and smiling and laughing at the antics of the dancers. And then the music stops as the musicians take a break. And he sees his cup there and he reaches down and takes a sip. And his, they can all see it. They can see his face brighten. This is, this is amazing. This, this isn't what he thought he was going to get. It's not what the servant thought he was going to get either. And the watchers, John and the disciples and the servants and Mary and Jesus, see the Lord of the banquet rise slowly and turn towards the groom. The music has stopped and now he can be heard. And he says, most people serve the best wine at the beginning of the party, at the beginning of the celebration, and save the cheap stuff till after everybody's had more than enough to drink. But you, you have saved the best until last. The only people who know what has happened are the servants, the disciples, Jesus, and Mary. We're back in El Salvador, and we're getting on the bus. And it's on the bus that we're told what has happened, just as we're driving out of Alegria. During the ceremony a man who was living in one of the 20 houses that had been built the year before, the husband and father of some of the people who were at the celebration, had gone up into the woods above the, the community and taken his life. And it was, I was really upset. I, I mean, it upsets me to think about it now. It was so awful because I'd been so naive. I thought... We're going to build some houses. We're going to change people's lives. This is great. They're going to be... But that doesn't, that's not true. That, how does getting a house make a difference to somebody who really changed their lives for someone who has known nothing but poverty all his life, who has been exposed to incredible exploitation, who maybe suffers from an addiction or depression or mental illness? Or, 
I don't know, but it didn't solve the problem. So the whole bus, which had been all full of joy, is now full of sadness. Some people start to cry. Some people pray. I just stare out the window. We head back to San Salvador, to Central Gabriel, where we are staying. It's very, very deflating. The next morning is Easter Sunday, and Iglesia Bautista Emmanuel has sent a minibus to pick us all up so we can join them for church. And so we climb aboard and we drive off to the little church. Now, this little church, it's really modest. It's a concrete block building, and it's in a hot country, so the blocks, some of the blocks have openings for the air to get right through. And during the Civil War, you know, if you, because this church worked with the poor, if you worked with the poor, you were seen as a communist. And so paramilitaries would every once in a while make threats. They had, over that period of the Civil War, 20-odd people from that church were picked up by death squads and, and killed. So they knew a lot about life in a tough place about the cost of discipleship. So there we are. We're sitting in this church. And uh, there's a crowd there. It's Easter Sunday. And I see Pastor Miguel working his way over towards us because all the volunteers are sitting in one little group like this over here. And he makes his way over to us. He's smiling. And he says hello to each of us. And he, he talks to me. And I ask, what about the church of the Lawn chairs. I thought the, the group, the Church of the Lawn Chairs, I called them, in, in Alegria was coming to join us for Easter Sunday. I thought you were sending a bus to pick them up. He said, oh, yes, we were. They were to come. There was even going to be a baptism. But after what happened yesterday, the Church of the Lawn Chairs elected to stay in Alegria, to embrace the family of the man who had taken his life. And suddenly, I, 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 I started to shudder. It was like a, a, a shiver went up my spine. This was why we were there. Without the commitment of this small church, that didn't have a lot of resources, but knew about the cost of discipleship. And without the volunteers from Canada, Canadian Baptists, who had lots of resources, but had never really experienced true suffering. And without the partnership with the municipality, who had all kinds of reasons not to trust people from the north, there would have not been this building project, this community of 50 houses. People who had been living in shacks and were homeless wouldn't have been coming there together. And if that hadn't happened either, there would not have been this little church of the lawn chairs to wrap around that family. It was a demonstration, I think, I had been looking at what was happening, but 
But suddenly I understood what was going on. God was moving. Heaven had stepped in to the moment. So years go by. John, the novice disciple, spends three years with Jesus. He sees lots of miracles. He sees the feeding of the 5,000. He sees the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He hears all those great sermons, the, the Sermon on the Mount and, and all of that. And he's there for the Last Supper where Jesus takes the cup and asks them to remember, this is my blood shed for you. He sees the first communion. He sees the crucifixion. And he sees the resurrection. Eventually, he becomes a leader of a congregation in Ephesus in Greece, Greek community. And he has lots of time to think about what this all meant, what he'd known, what, would ha- what had happened. But when he writes his book, his gospel, he's an old man. He's not the young man who was there. He's an old man looking back and understanding both what happened and what was going on. He remembers the six jars, symbols of Judaism, of the old covenant. He remembers a wedding, the union of two parties as one. He remembers how the water of those old jars for, for cleansing, ritual cleansing, became wine. Just and has after three days, the three days were part of it. All those details. How that event turns into this event. And that's how we come to be here. How this group of people is in this room. How you're watching this online today. I think it's the same with our own lives. When we're living through something, whether it's on a mission trip to El Salvador, whether it's raising your kids, whether it's your job, you're there and you see it, see what's happening. You may not be conscious of God's presence in any of that. But when you look back, when you look back at the rough moments or at the good moments or, or anything, you look back. And now, after the fact, you see him there. I know that's how it is for me. I have an idea then of what was going on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you so much for choosing John to be part of that group, that group of disciples, a man who watched and observed and remembered all of this and then understood it. We thank you for 
the gift of what we are about to receive, the grace that you gave us, but also this, this ceremony, this ordinance of communion where we reconnect with you, the church as the bride and you as the groom. Help us to always trust in you in the moment to understand both what is happening and to perceive also what's going on. In Jesus' name, amen.